Michael, do you hear that? I do. What do you, you got a little uh, vodka tonic or what's going on there? Michael, that is the telltale clink of the ice cubes in my iced coffee. And that is how you know it is Saturday, my friends, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail. I'm Michael Haney, one of the deputy editors here at Airmail. And that is my extremely well-caffeinated, well-coiffed partner, Ashley. And for those of you who don't know, or maybe you were wondering, we've got a few letters about this. Ashley was a little over-caffeinated last week, if you could tell. The energy level was a little bit up. It was a little up, Michael. Guess what? People like me that way, so I am trying to oblige everyone. I'm on my hmm, fourth, fifth? I don't know. It's been a lot of coffee today, but I'm going to try to keep it clean, Michael. I'm going to try to keep... Who's counting? Who's counting? Just keep going. Who's what? Counting? What? What? My husband, he's like, uh, another pot? Another pot? I'm like, absolutely. Yes. I, yes, absolutely. We have a lot to talk about, Michael. It's a great show and we're happy to be here with all of our listeners. Yeah, we're happy to be here. We're in the sort of like blush of summer. Uh, you're back in New York. We're no longer coast to coast. We're now coast to third coast. I'm up in the north woods of Wisconsin on the on the shores of Lake Michigan in the pine trees. So we're sort of, like I say, coast to, coast to third coast, but it's great to be with everyone today on this Saturday. We're officially in the full swing of summer, Michael, and I don't know if you've been reading the papers, but apparently this summer belongs to the young and sexy. It's like the summer of love all over again, at least in New York City. People are making out in the streets J-Lo and Ben Affleck are making out at bars. There's a lot of love in the air and I'm here for it. It's not just the roaring 20s, it's the horny 20s. It's like everyone is just, <laughs> talk about talk about pent-up demand on the consumer side, sure, but pent-up command, uh, demand on the uh, heavy petting side is, is there as well. I have a friend, I'm not going to name him, this has happened to him twice in the past month. He is a <laughs> divorced father of three. And he's walking through the West Village twice now. The West Village, and as it's like walking by, I've been approached by young girls in their twenties. Like, hey, you want to have a drink with us? So, like, it's just everyone's out. Wow. You know, I was talking to, I was interviewing someone for a story I'm working on, and she said, you know, look, everyone's vaxxed and waxed, and they're ready to go. And I was like, okay, vaxxed and waxed. I hadn't heard that phrase before, but I like it. I think that's our next uh, T-shirt or a trucker cap or embroidered pillow, wherever you fall on the age range, you know. Trucker hat. Just, <laughs> well, you know, it would probably work. Vax, wax, and ready to go. It's funny. I mean, look, I'm here for it. Like after all of this isolation, it should be no surprise. There's probably going to be a massive baby boom in about nine, 10 months from now. Just watch, Michael. It's going to be cool to see what transpires. It's the baby boom that follows the pandemic puppy boom. So it's toddlers of a different sort coming, coming at us in nine, 10 months. Well, We have a great issue this week, full of love, sex, and perhaps even a bit of rock and roll. And I think we should get started talking about Lisa Tadeo's new book, Michael, do you think? It certainly fits a theme. Yeah. I I mean, this is... So why is everyone talking about this book, Ashley? Well, so Lisa Tadeo came on the scene a few years ago with her book, Three Women, and it was all about uh, female desire and told from the point of view of three women with three different stories. And it was fascinating on a lot of levels. And as she was touring the country reporting this book, uh, she ended up meeting a gentleman who became her husband. And she's now 41 years old. She's had kind of a tragic life story, right? Her dad died in a car accident. This is all when she's, you know, before 30 years old. Her mother became ill with cancer and Lisa moved back home from New Jersey after college to, to take care of her. And her brother ended up with his own family, but she was single for a long time. And it turns out that she um, was suffering alone 
She was staying in hotel rooms, ordering room service, taking Ambien and passing out. She had a huge fear of death and she found dating to be totally hopeless. The new book Animal picks up with a lot of blood, miscarriages, rape, suicide, murder, and a horrible car crash. So in other words, ladies and gentlemen, it's got it all. But it's her first novel and it's certainly a page turner. And it's the book that everyone is going to be talking about because guess what? There's lots of sex in this book too. She talks about how difficult it is for women to pick apart a language of sex that's been written by men based on the desires of men. What did you think of Three Women, Michael? Did you read it? I did read it. I thought it was one of those pieces of reporting that was extremely revealing, you know, as because, you know, it's sort of as Janice Turner, who wrote the piece for us this week, says it was an extraordinary piece of writing as if the new journalism of the right stuff and in cold blood had entered marital beds in Indiana and North Dakota, which is where these women, two of the women that she was talking to were, were living. A very great piece of reporting, cultural reporting and cultural contextualization. So really one of the reasons why it resonates so much with people. Yeah. I'm desperate to read Animal and I think I'm going to revisit Three Women again. Stay tuned. Yeah. Great review in this week's issue by Janice Turner. I just want to talk about it's summer, it's travel. And my favorite little note that we have in the, one of my favorite notes we have in the issue this week comes as always from the diary by George Kalajarakis. And Europe's opening up. People are wondering about the vaccinations. Where can I go? Blah, blah, blah. So in Germany, there's still many countries, the U.S. included, trying to reach that sort of the reluctant holdouts of people they want to bring on board. The U.S. has been doing different things, like you get a lottery ticket to woo people over. What do they do in Germany? They turn to someone who's super popular in Germany, someone who's revered by the German people. No jokes here. But it is a man known as the Hoff. David Hasselhoff, who is known for many things, Baywatch, Knight Rider, his motivational speaking, his reality show, The Hasselhoffs. But the Germans, he's so revered there, they turn to him and he does a a public spot where he says, I found my freedom from with vaccination. You can too. And then he shows his handy bicep, you know, where he just got the shot. So, you know, the Hoff doing his part for the vaccine. All right, speaking of summer, you know what else I like in the issue this week? You've got a fun, you've got a fun piece about entertaining and a great way to sort of have summer backyards sort of you want to have people over, but you don't want to go, oh, we all know the stress of having people over. And you've got a great discovery this week, right? So, Michael, I love to entertain. I really do. I have friends over pretty much every weekend. Like, my house is kind of like an open door policy. Like, all are welcome. Come on over. I've got cocktails roaring. I just want to interrupt here for our listeners. I'm not invited. <laughs> Michael is always invited. Michael is uh, Michael and Brooke are always invited. I've never been. I've never been. People, see, just letting you know. Just mm-hmm. letting you know. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, mm-hmm. go ahead, Ashley. Mm-hmm. What? Okay. All right. Well, anyway, so I like to entertain, but is it always 100% successful? It's not. Because my big problem is I start mixing margaritas too early and then dinner is delayed and sometimes things are not cooked properly and X, Y, and Z. So I heard about this really fun new startup called Party by Numbers. And they developed this incredible mid-century bar cart that is delivered to your home or apartment with everything that you need to have a full dinner party for anywhere between eight and 96 people. And the very best part is at the end of the night, you just throw all the dishes back in the cart and the next morning someone picks it up and whisks it away like it was never there. I had these visions of with you, like it's like Frank Sinatra and the tender trap rolling in the bar cart and everything perfect. Ashley, on another note, One thing that's not perfect is politics. 
But one thing I think in the issue we should talk about this week is a is a terrific piece, and I think a sort of urgent piece from our contributor Roger Parloff, and. He's talking this week, uh, you know, you've seen some moves over the last few weeks in Republican state legislatures uh, where they've been enacting laws to limit voting rights and different things, uh, you know, but as Roger digs into it this week, I think the the urgency in this is it's, you know, we can laugh at sort of like people down in Arizona, the state legislature looking for traces of bamboo in the recount ballots because that would show that the Chinese actually uh, were involved in them. But uh, there's actually deeper implications here, Ashley. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things I found so important and um memorable about this piece is the statistics. And I'm going to read some of them to you here. We had a general sense of the fact that Republicans are in command of many of the state legislatures. But as Roger reports, they are now in command of 61 of 99 state legislative chambers, including both chambers in 30 states. Meanwhile, Democrats have 18. And in 23 states, they actually have the trifecta, a Republican governor as well. So this is making it very easy to pass all all types of legislation. And I think what Roger really digs into here is, is in addition to a lot of voter suppression laws that are attempting to be passed, a lot of the items on the Republican agenda in these states is directed at restricting access to abortions. So uh, as Parloff reports, 561 bills to restrict abortion rights have already been introduced this year, and 83 have been signed into law. And this is the most since 1973, which was the year that Roe versus Wade established a constitutional right to abortion. Yeah, and on the other hand, you know, there's also been a, a whole spate of what's known as permitless concealed carry laws that have been passed, which allow people to uh, hide loaded firearms uh, on their persons without training, background checks, or law enforcement approvals that were once required to do that. We should probably touch on the, the bills that also target protesters. A lot of these were triggered by last summer's uh, wave of racial justice demonstrations. But there are some bills that are being referred to as the hit and kill bills that seek to immunize drivers from having any avert, adverse civil or criminal consequences for unintentionally running over protesters. But I think the the, the sort of real... Uh, essence of this piece, as, as in, in Roger points out, is by controlling all these state houses and and having the ability to gerrymander the redistricting that happens every 10 years based on the census. The Republicans, this is not to sound alarmist or whether you're Republican or Democrat, it's they will be able to win presidential elections without either the popular vote or even an electoral college victory. As Roger points out, if Republican state legislators halt certification of adverse results in a presidential election, they can, under the 12th Amendment, throw the election to the House of Representatives. And since the 12th Amendment permits only one vote per state delegation under those unique circumstances, Republicans would likely win there, regardless of whether Democrats, quote, unquote, control the House for all other purposes. You know, this is what you saw in the last presidential election where they're trying to get states to not certify votes. And this is what this would mean if, if you could sort of put put that process into doubt, throw it into the House, where, again, even though there's 365 members, there's only well, each each state only gets one vote. And if you have, you know, 26 Republican states voting to 24 there, there, there's where you go. So as, as Roger also points out, so what, what can the Democrats do? 
but I really can't do much because their quote-unquote victory in the Senate last November was kind of illusory. They're hogtied by Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who won't permit it to counteract voter repression laws, voter suppression laws. It's like I said, actually, it's, it's an urgent piece that gives you some perspective on, you know, we, we, we get distracted by sometimes what's happening in D.C., but really it's at the local level. So oftentimes where more impact is going to be had on our lives. Well, any type of buoyancy or optimism or feel-good vibes that I might have had at the beginning of this episode have effectively been extinguished. Thank you, Roger. <laughs> <laughs> All right, where are we going next, my dear? Literary lovers rejoice because we've got the one and the only James Elroy here to talk to us about his new novel. Elroy is probably one of the greatest living American novelists. Michael, you know James better than anyone. Tell us everything we need to know. Well, I can tell you that I edited James back in the day at GQ in the years after LA Confidential and his harrowing memoir, My Dark Places, if you've never read it about the murder of his mother, mother. But, you know, as he said, wrote The Black Dahlia, The Big Nowhere, LA Confidential, White Jazz, fantastic writer in the pantheon of literary crime. But don't take my word for it. And this week, we also have a tremendous, very fun and very smart and rave about the piece by James Walcott about Elroy's new book, which is called Widespread Panic. And it, it begins in Hollywood with a, uh, well, as... James says, the audacity of Elroy's imagination remains undimmed. His energy torrential, his sense of humor is fantastic. And he says, it's definitely a book to read this summer. And it just picks up I mean, widespread panic. It's a behind the scenes look at the rise and fall of the celebrity scandal rag Confidential as told by its most notorious investigator and fixer, who was a real person, Freddie Otash. And like I say, don't take my word, take James Walcott. And But also we're going to talk to James Elroy now about it, right, Ashley? Oh, welcome, James. Or Elroy. All right, everyone, let's give a warm morning meeting welcome to the demon dog of American letters, Mr. James Elroy. Ow! So welcome, Mr. Elroy. Hey, Miss Baker. Hey, Haney. Michael Michael Haney's an old pal of mine. He used to be my editor at GQ back at the turn of the century. Well, we are thrilled to have you. First of all, Mr. Elroy, tell us, we need to know exactly what your lockdown situation was like. It was productive. I made up my mind not to get the virus, and I didn't. And uh, I avoided the virus. And I wrote Widespread Panic, the book we're here to talk about. And now the virus is on its way out, and I'm happy for the world. All right, let, let's just go back for a minute. How many pages is this new book clocking in at? It's 329 pages. You started this during the pandemic, or had the idea been generated beforehand? The idea had been generated beforehand in an earlier edition of the first of the three sections, Shakedown, had been published back in 2012, and then I revised the piece extensively and wrote the second and third sections during the pandemic. All right, I'm impressed because your output still dwarfs ours over here. Because, I mean, the fact that you got this book finished and got it put out, and we're not even really done with the pandemic yeah. yet, is quite a feat. So, productive indeed. Is this like kind of usual levels of productivity for you or is this sort of a souped up version? Yeah, it is. It is. And, and I write by hand. 
I've never used a computer for anything. It bewildered me to have to call into the telephone relay station from my landline phone to activate this interview here. I've never used a cell phone for anything. I've never used a computer for anything. And I know how to write with ink on white notebook paper, and I've been doing it for 42 years, and I will continue doing it. Um, Well, let's talk about widespread panic and let's talk about our our protagonist hero, Freddie Otash. All right. So the first line of the book just brings you right in. I've spent 28 years in this hellhole. Now they tell me I can memoir map my misadventures and write my way out. So who is this guy, James? Where do we find him? Freddie Otash was a real life all around bird. He was a corrupt cop on LAPD from 45 to 55 he became a, a Hollywood fixture, a an abortion broker, a shakedown quasher, a shakedown implementer, and most notably, the fellow who bugged gay bathhouses and had half of L.A. hotwired for Confidential Magazine back in the fitful 50s, and he had desk clerks bribed. Everybody was Freddie Snitch, and he was looking for the dirt, the sinuendo, and the scandalous skank, and he found it, and that's how Confidential thrived and avoided litigation for as long as it did because when Freddie outed your ass, it was Laver Dodd. It was the truth. And that was Freddie. He was a voyeur, he was a peeper, he was a prowler, and he was a snarky snitch. I mean, he was an all around bad guy, and I have given him human characteristics that make him a whole lot more likable than that. And Freddie will tell you he had them all. All. Marilyn Monroe, Kane Mansfield, yeah, who else? Yeah, you name it. Well, one of, that's one of the things I think, as always, what, I, what is so fantastic about your books, James, is the tapestry of people that show up as well as the, you know, this period that you're looking at. Everyone from JFK to James Dean to Burt Lancaster to Marlon Brando, they all show up here and not by accident, but as you point out, because this guy had LA hotwired or basically um, blackmailed for, for, for a good 30, 40 years. And do you think, the, I mean, in many ways, he was, he was almost like the, the most powerful man in L.A. For, for those decades, right? He was discredited in the late 1950s. Shortly after that, he just became a police snitch and a mob lapdog who did divorce work ad hoc in Hollywood without a privatized license. And then in 1970, the floor fell out for all private eyes in general. I mean, and and this is nationwide because no fault divorce came in. So that was it. There was no luring the cheating hubby and the call girl to the motel and kicking the door in to get the pictures so the wife could get a groovy divorce settlement. These were bad times for sleazy private eyes. So, of course, I said everything prior to 1970. I'm kind of interested in in some way of like, you know, the morality of then and the immorality of then versus now, right? I mean, now it seems like 
there are, can you blackmail anyone these days? You know, in a world where just socially, culturally, politically, it seems like, you know, as, as someone once said, I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and they wouldn't care, right? Do you think it's different, the same, or how do you see the now versus then in terms of how, how, how people's morality is and, and, and that? I think everything that was happening now was happening then, only it was under wraps and it had a great power to shock and to titillate. And what made Confidential as successful as it was that for years the studio publicity machines had fed John and Jane Q. Public, a diet, a diet of tap about the wholesome lives of movie stars and socialites and their political consorts. And then the people who put out Confidential realized that the readership of Joe, Jane, and Jack America wanted to see these people fall, wanted their dirty secrets aired because it rendered them, this portrayal, attainable to the masses. All right. You know, one of the things that struck me about, you know, reading this book is how we live in a world now with so few secrets and your writing is full of them, right? And I kind of missed that, right? But I'm going to ask you now to reveal one of your secrets, Mr. Elroy. I need to know, how do you do dialogue so well? Like, was this a gift you've always had? Did you hone it? Do you have a secret for aspiring fiction writers out there? Here's the deal. I lived back then. Being computer illiterate, never having had a cell phone, not keeping up with current events, politics, popular culture, I can and I have immersed myself in the American 1940s, the LA 1940s, and LA's my hometown, the 1950s and early 1960s, low these many decades of my life, and I have assimilated the language and I've reinvented the language, and I want to go back and rewrite that history to my exact specifications. And the one question I never answer about these books of mine is what's real and what's not. And in the third section of the book, which deals with the psycho-rapist Carol Chessman, who went deservedly so to the gas chamber in May of 1960, I posit a conspiracy with actor James Dean, the subversive filmmaker Nicholas Ray. I tattle rumors on Marlon Brando that happen to be accurate. There are a lot of faux rumors that I insert there to muddy the waters. And then I bring in a woman who has been a fixation of mine for many, many decades since the time that I first saw her in an episode of the Naked City TV show when I was 13. May she rest in peace, my dear Lois Nettleton. And she's Freddie's love interest. It's the miracle of fiction. It's why we read books. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that's what your world underscores so prominently is we do read books to live somewhere else. And when we're in your book, everything sort of falls away, like everything on the outside falls away. But James... I never asked you this question directly when we were working together, but I mean, I, I came away for, again from this book, you know, when we talk about secrets and 
duplicity and all these things. What's your view of, of human nature? I'm optimistic about the human race. I, I like people in a, a distant way. I think most folks are, are just fine. I'm a Christian. I believe, I believe in sin. I believe in repentance and atonement and redemption. And with all the sex leads, the secrets quashed, the secrets revealed, I view widespread panic as a Christian novel. I'm optimistic. But, but you, you, James, ultimately believe in, in the goodness of people, right? Yeah, I, I do. But you like to dwell amongst this Hieronymus Bosch kind of uh, world of, of, of uh, where everything seems to be collapsing. And that, I mean, and as readers, I, for one, am very grateful for that. It's, it's Dante-like. You transport us through some crazy circles of hell, James. And with humor, Michael. Exactly. Yeah, and, and there's lots of laughs in this book. Well, it's an awful lot of fun. Listeners, if you want to romp through a world that may or may not exist anymore, but with some storytelling that cannot be rivaled, pick it up. Widespread Panic, available at independent bookstores everywhere. Yeah. Along with the rest of the of from Mr. James Elroy, Man Myth Legend. Listen, and lean mean, obscene, and barely into my teens at the age of 73. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, James Elroy, ladies and gentlemen. All right, Ms. Baker, Michael, God bless you, and we will talk. Talk soon. See you later, dog. Thanks again. Thanks for coming by. As always with Mr. Elroy, it's been real. Now, before we sign off and march into uh, another marvelous, sexy weekend, do you have anything at all you can recommend? Speaking of sexy, one thing I want to recommend this week is a new book, and we have excerpts of it. It's a visual excerpt we have this week with uh, some text by Julia Vitale, or one of our book editors, and it's by Jean Pagazzi, who, and it's called The 213 Most Important Men in My Life. And Jean Pagazzi is kind of a high-end zealot, travels the world, sort of, I don't even know how to describe him. But he's got photographs and he's, he's, he's always got his camera on his neck. He moves in very elite circles with very famous people. And I love these photographs because there are all these casual snaps of everyone from Fellini on set to Alberi Baez backstage to Ahmet Erdogan fretting over his broken down car by the side of the road. I love this one of Steve Jobs, a young Steve Jobs, standing outside the IBM building giving it the finger. It's a fun look behind the scenes of celebrity and uh, in stolen moments. And, uh, you know, even you have an impossibly young John Belushi. I just love it. Well, I've got something old and something new. I'll start with something new, which is uh, the Gene Smart comedy drama series Hacks, which I'm not sure if you've seen this yet. It's on HBO. I have not. Hats? Hacks. H-A-C-K-S, <laughs> my dear. Hacks. Write it uh, down. You just got it. You got just hacks, hacks. Hacks. This is like the summer of Jean Smart. And she was marvelous in Mare of Easttown, as we have been ranting and raving about for the last few weeks. But she's this is a great show. It's kind of the sleeper hit of the season, I think. Graydon, of course, like all good things, originated from the boss. Graydon actually saw this before I did and, and wrote to me about it. And I would love to have Jean on Morning Meeting working on it to talk to her about this great show and 
uh, also about Mayor of Easttown, but this is, she really shines here. I mean, she, uh, she plays a comedy pioneer who was almost the first female late night television host, but she has evolved into being a Las Vegas fixture. And so she has these old self-deprecating routines that she keeps rehashing and rehashing uh, to pay for her life out there, which is fairly extravagant. And then she all of a sudden encounters this 25 year old comedy writer played by Hannah Einbinder who encourages her to like develop something that feels a bit more true and real. Uh, and so their relationship is the genesis of this, this series. And it's just totally brilliant. It's finely tuned and incredibly heartfelt. And it's, it's just a beautiful show on a lot of levels. So I highly recommend that. And what else? You said you have something else. I have something old. So on the plane back from Los Angeles, I watched Brokeback Mountain. Speaking of Summer of Love, have you seen that lately? I have not seen it lately. Okay, well, this is Ang Lee's masterpiece from 2005, and I hadn't seen it since. I've lived a lot of life in those past 15, 16 years, Michael, and I watched it on the plane, and I cried for the last 20 minutes. I just can't get over how gorgeous this movie is, and Heath Ledger's performance in it. I mean, what a reminder of what a gifted, gifted, gifted actor he was, and not only Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal deliver marvelous performances, but all the supporting cast. I forgot all the great people that are in this movie. Kate Mara plays Heath Ledger's daughter. You also have Linda Cardellini, who plays his latest girlfriend. Anne Hathaway is totally brilliant in this. Like, it's just such a great, beautiful movie. And Great to hear that. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's actually a very interesting segue into one other piece, last piece I want to talk about in the issue this week, written by Peter Biskind, who you most likely know from his fantastic book, Easy Riders and Raging Bulls, which came out some years ago and talked about how that new breed from George Lucas to Steven Spielberg to Francis Ford Coppola stormed Hollywood in the late 60s, early 70s. And he has a tremendous piece this week about a guy named Jerome Hellman, who was on the vanguard of Hollywood's 1970s creative rebellion. Now, who the hell is Jerome Hellman? Exactly. He is the little-known genius behind Midnight Cowboy, another cowboy-based film, sort of, and Coming Home. And as Peter writes, this guy was a producer, and we, we kind of don't even know what producers do anymore, mostly because the auteur theory took hold in the late 60s, early 70s, which basically said the director, it lionized them. And producers, the guys who actually put the film together, were they just seen as the guys who did the stuff behind the scenes? But Peter's point is, without producers, there would have been dramatically fewer auteurs especially during that period of the 70s when studios were being taken over by these guys. And Jerry Hellman was one such producer, arguably the best, as Peter says. And he neatly bookended that era from the late 60s through the late 70s by producing Midnight Cowboy near the beginning, for which he won a Best Picture Oscar in 1969. And I will remind you again, that was the only X-rated film to ever win the Best Picture Oscar. And then... Towards the end of the 70s, he did, in 1978, Coming Home with Jane Fonda and Chris Christopherson. So, a tremendous career, great sort of context by Peter about how he did it, beginning with just finding the material for Midnight Cowboys based on a novel that was sent to him by the director, John Schlesinger. And as Peter says, it was a homoerotic tale that wasn't or maybe was directed by Schlesinger, a closeted gay Brit, written by a blacklisted writer, Waldo Salt, and starring nobody's idea of a leading man, a short Jewish character actor named Dustin Hoffman. And worse, it was, you know, very lurid. So it was a film that sort of had a huge impact on Hollywood, maybe even more so than Easy Rider. 
And then he, as he came around, like I said, 10 years later with a really powerful film, Coming Home, often not sort of watched as much anymore, but two tremendous films by a guy who really shaped what that, when everyone reveres that Hollywood in the 70s and the indie and the transformative films, Jerome Hellman, Jerry Hellman was one of the guys who really made it possible. Well, thank you, Michael. You're welcome, my dear. But I'm bum. Well, on that note, I suppose we should release everybody into the weekend. Thank you, as always, for joining us. This is the best possible way to spend a Saturday, at least for us. We hope you're not suffering too much. And we look forward to seeing you all next week. So, Michael, will you please read us out? I would be delighted to, dear. And I'll let you go back to making another coffee. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. But most of all, thanks for joining us. <laughs>